0: Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion, and please be sure to subscribe for more.
1: Steph, how are you doing today, man? I appreciate it. Oh, all
0: right. I, I, I didn't know what I was supposed to do when I saw the invitation. It showed up three times, and I hit various different things, and whatever I hit last made this happen. So.
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll uh, we'll just uh, chalk that up to technology can be really useful and other times it can be confusing. So I appreciate you uh, <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs>
1: doing that. So um, we did this, we did an interview a few years ago, pre-COVID, where we were able to sit in person and you were kind enough, as you did this year, speak to my class at George Mason uh, on the very both complicated and in some ways, simple areas of asset forfeiture. And um as as folks know in the AML community you are the uh, CEO of Asset Forfeiture Law LLC a long career in government now you're in the private sector helping government and helping others as well uh you've also uh written at least i think at this point two treatises right on uh, yes uh, federal money laundering crimes and forfeiture and the asset forfeiture law in the US right I, i've always i've always felt that the Uh, use of the asset forfeiture uh, tool, if you will, uh, doesn't get as much uh, credit as it it should. It's obviously you're going after illicit funds or properties or what have you. So I thought it'd be useful before we talk about some specifics, if you could give us a quick primer on asset forfeiture, both how it's used in the civil context and how it's used in the criminal context. And I'll ask you some follow-ups after that.
0: Sure. Well, you know, asset forfeiture is a It's become a a critical and essential law enforcement tool. Um, It's used for all kinds of purposes to punish the bad guy, to make sure the property that he used to commit the crime isn't available to use to be used again, uh, to uh, deter other people from committing the same crime. If uh, the last guy didn't get to keep the toys, maybe the next guy will not be so inclined to commit the crime. Um, Getting money back to victims, uh, making sure there's a level playing field so that uh, people who... Profit from illegal activity, don't uh, compete unfairly in the marketplace when they want to establish a business, open a restaurant uh, or whatever it might be. We don't want to be the repository for the world's uh, criminal proceeds. And so we use forfeiture to stop kleptocrats from investing in the United States. Uh, Generally, it's done as part of a criminal case. Generally, forfeitures follow the prosecution. If the defendant's convicted of a crime, um, then the judge will impose forfeiture as part of his sentence. And uh, in most cases, Congress has authorized the forfeiture of the proceeds of the crime. And in some cases, it's authorized the forfeiture of the property used to commit the crime, the facilitating property. And either one or both can be forfeited um, if the defendant is convicted. And that's called criminal forfeiture. It's just part of the defendant's sentence. And as I say, it's, it's fairly routine. Um, What's different is uh, civil forfeiture, and the government uses that when a criminal forfeiture is not possible or not advisable. When the defendant is dead, he's a fugitive, he's uh, overseas uh, and outside of our jurisdiction. When the property is um, identified as being the proceeds of crime, but it was in the hands of a courier or for some other reason, we don't know who committed the crime. uh, And for lots of other reasons, sometimes when in the interests of justice, it's just more appropriate to take the property than it is to bring a criminal prosecution. So those are the civil forfeiture cases, and as I say, they're they're the uh, the gap filler when uh, it's not possible or appropriate to bring a criminal case. And it's and both civil and criminal forfeiture are used every day in the federal system uh, and for all the purposes that I mentioned.
1: So when um, properties are forfeited. Uh, As you say, sometimes it makes it a a level playing field. In other cases, uh, the government gets, well, you tell me, gets some utilization of the property. Do they? I mean, so forfeited properties in some cases, does that become, uh, again, owned by the federal or state government? Or is that fairly uh, unusual? Describe that. So I understand when it goes back to the victims, but when that's not either possible or part of the equation, how does the government utilize forfeited funds or forfeited properties?
0: Sure. Well, the first priority is to get the property back to the victim. So if if the crime involved victims, if it was a fraud, if it was a theft, embezzlement or whatever, and the government forfeits the property, the government takes title, but then it uses uh, its ownership of the property to um, satisfy a restitution order. Uh, that the court has imposed, or to otherwise reimburse the victims of the crime. So the government doesn't keep the money in a, in a case involving victims. I, the very first case that I handled of any consequence many, many years ago, and John, I think you'll remember it, the BCCI case, we recovered right. $1.2 billion. And the government uh, gave virtually all of that, uh, aside from the amount of money that was required to pay for some computer um, access that cost some money off the top. You gave all the money back to the victims to be distributed in a pro rata way. So that's what typically happens. But if the case is like a drug case or another case where there are no identifiable victims, the money uh, becomes the government's property. It goes into a law enforcement fund called the Assets Forfeiture Fund and then is appropriated out of that um, to the various agencies that um, have a request for money for training, for equipment and so forth. Um, And there's also a separate program by which uh, state and local law enforcement agencies that participated and assisted the federal government in a forfeiture case uh, can get some of the property uh, as well.
1: So two two, two, uh, themes I want to cover. One is there's been uh, criticism uh, of forfeiture authorities, some suggesting that it lacks due process. I'm going to have you address that because I know you testified uh, before the civil rights commission earlier this year so i want to hear about that because that to me is very uh, instructive because y- you among any people know exactly how that um can be sort of a uh i won't say nuance but obviously there's some things that don't get picked up by the media this isn't this isn't bashing the media but stories where you know monies are taken from somebody on their way to a, the gardening convention or something uh they tend to get the headlines versus maybe the reality. I want to go to that in a second. But I also, the other thing that's very uh, uh, public now is the seizure of Russian assets uh, from oligarchs, whether they're funds. Talk a bit about that, the use of asset forfeiture um, uh, to, to take away the, the, the monies uh, of oligarchs, because that's obviously a very valuable tool um, so t- t- tell us your your take your take on that specifically since Russia invaded Ukraine sure well what's interesting
0: and this uh, alludes a little bit to your first point but then I'm, I'm going to talk about your second everyone uh, thinks it's a wonderful thing when the government can can uh, use the forfeiture laws to take away uh, yachts and airplanes from Russian oligarchs or you know more broadly when it, to take away the proceeds of a theft by a corrupt uh, dictator in some country that he's stolen from his people and invested in the United States, just as they think it's fine for the government to take money away from child pornographers and terrorists and right. uh, human traffickers and, and all sorts of other people. But the cases um, and the government does those cases day in and day out, and nobody criticizes them, nor do they get reported in the press. Um but what you see in the newspapers all the time is when some knucklehead gets stopped at a traffic light and he's got sixty thousand dollars wrapped in rubber bands in his car, right, right. and uh, and somehow that becomes uh, a, a major issue for um, the media to report on, um, without uh, without understanding that that's only the beginning of the process. And this right. gets to your, you know, the the that point that we'll talk about in a little bit about due process. But in the cases of the of the Russian oligarchs. Um, the seizure of the asset based on its connection to some crime is only the beginning of the process. It may take years to ultimately litigate all the issues that are going to be raised in these cases. But if the government can establish that a given person is using his property or has maintained his property in violation of the sanctions that have been posed on him or on his company or more generally on a class of people uh, associated with uh, Vladimir Putin's regime, right? Uh, and can establish that it can get a seizure warrant. It has to go to a judge and get a warrant. Then it has to get the has to execute the warrant on the property. And if the property is overseas, that means it has to get a foreign court to to assist. That's what happened in the case of the mega yacht Amadea, which was seized in Fiji uh, in uh, April. Um, the Fiji government, the court. Honored the warrant in June, turned the property over and the yacht was sailed to San Diego, where it now is. So that's those are the first two steps. Get a warrant and execute the warrant. But then that's just the beginning. Then the government has to establish the forfeitability of the property in court. And there's discovery. There's depositions. There's the objections by um, the property owner that, you know, which is probably a shell company, that it's the owner, not the, um, the designated uh, person. Uh, who allegedly violated sanctions. And all of that can go on for years, maybe a decade, uh, before the government finally takes title. And in the meantime, it has to maintain the property, which is a very great expense. So right. it's it's not as if you know announcing that we're going to seize Russian oligarchs, yachts and, and airplanes is uh, is going to result in the deposit of a tremendous amount of money in a bank account someday. Uh, and as good as a uh, use of that would be to, to aid uh, Ukraine, for humanitarian purposes. It's not going to happen overnight.
1: I think that's important. Uh, and then on on the other part, uh, like I said, uh, I saw from, uh, we'll give folks uh, information on your website, but I saw on your website, you, you testified in South Carolina before their Civil Rights Commission to talk about, as you've already begun to discuss here, how civil forfeiture works um, and address the specific criticism that they were looking at at the time that it, lacks due process and is unfairly applied to minorities. Um, Give us a little bit from your both of your testimony and the follow up questions that you had uh, that uh, that the uh, commission asked you that day. Um, Sure. uh, Talk, talk a bit about that.
0: Okay. Well, there has
1: you know, no program,
0: no matter how effective or important to law enforcement is going to long survive that people think that it's unfair. Uh, and that's why it's important for people to understand how civil forfeiture works. I mean, as I mentioned, the civil forfeiture cases are the cases that are brought when a criminal prosecution isn't feasible. Um, but that doesn't mean that that they're easy. Uh, the government, its not it doesn't require a criminal conviction, but the government still has to prove there was a crime. And it still has to prove that the property was connected to that crime, that it was the proceeds or that it was used to commit it. And the government has to prove that by a preponderance of the evidence. It has. It's, the, the, the property owner has a right to a jury trial. Uh, the government has to act expeditiously. There are f- strict deadlines. So many days after the seizure, the case has to begin and, uh, and so forth. Um, the, uh, both sides have the right to discover each other's evidence in advance of the trial. Uh, the property owner has an innocent owner defense. If he Um, even if the government proves this property was used to commit a crime, he can still object that he didn't know it or that he tried to stop it. And all forfeitures are uh, limited by the um, uh, excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, which says that a forfeiture has to be um, proportional to the gravity of the offense. So all of that due process is built into the system. The criticism comes from people who either don't realize that Right. Or who are um, who stop at the end of the first sentence, which is who gets the money. And if at the end of the day, the police get to keep some of the money, um, that becomes a reason to object no matter how much due process is involved. And that's unfortunate because what it's become, it's part of the defund the police movement. If right. you want to defund the police, then you don't like the idea that the police get to share in the four footed property. And um, I I think that's, you know, we we have that sort of an unfortunate political cast has been um, placed on on this. And that's why you see all the news stories are only about the, you know, seizures of small amounts of money during traffic stops and never about the recovery of the Bitcoins that were taken in a ransomware case or um, the money that was stopped from. Uh, going to a terrorist organization in the Middle East or whatever, which is what the Justice Department actually does day in and day out. When the, you mentioned the Civil Rights Commission um, and one of the um, um, panelists asked me, well, isn't it true that uh, most of the money seized in civil forfeiture cases in South Carolina is seized from black men? And does not that in and of itself, isn't that a prima facie case that this is being
1: right. um,
0: applied in a discriminatory way? And I said, well, you, ha- you have to tell me who are the drug dealers in South Carolina? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can tell you that when I first started in the Justice Department doing organized crime cases in uh, Providence, Rhode Island with the Patriarca family, that all of our defendants were Italian Americans. Uh, diversity wasn't a big thing among the patriarchal family. Um, when I was in Baltimore and we uh, were focusing on uh, all cash businesses that were not paying taxes and we focused on liquor stores, it turned out we prosecuted a lot of Korean Americans because that's who owned the liquor stores. And when we shifted to cash businesses running gas stations and convenience stores, it turned out we had a lot of South Asians. So you got to tell me who are the drug dealers in South Carolina? Um if it you know turns out to be um, one particular ethnic group, um, that right. doesn't mean that they were being discriminated against. That's just who you um, encounter when you enforce the drug laws.
1: No, that uh, obviously uh, that makes that makes sense, and you know statistics can be utilized, but you have to know context. So the kind of context makes sense. Um, well, I want to focus a little bit on your international work because uh, obviously one of the reasons that you're called upon to advise governments or other organ- international organizations. And asset forfeiture because you've done, you've, you've worked so much in, in the U S on U S federal law. I've known that because I've, I've known you for several decades. And I know you worked on uh, the money laundering legislation in, in the eighties, nineties, obviously the Patriot act. Uh, so you have a lot of experience in crafting uh, what policymakers want, but making it uh, a rational, I don't mean it pejoratively, but uh, making sure that the statutes are, are workable and all that. So when you get asked to uh, advise outside uh, you know, foreign governments, what typically are they looking for? Are they looking for you to help them create a statute out of whole cloth uh, to improve upon what they've used or to get some third party with fresh eyes to make a determination? Hey, you know, if you made some changes here or there, there could be uh, a more efficient utilization or is it a combination of all of that
0: well it 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 varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and i have indeed been extremely fortunate and that i've been invited to go to a great many places around the world and to um uh, help them um from the benefit of my my experience uh with uh their program their forfeiture programs uh in some cases they already have an asset forfeiture statute on the books but they don't know how to use it um it's brand new or it's been uh, underutilized and they they need training. I spent many years going back and forth to uh, South Africa, made a great deal of uh, uh, friends there and helped them uh, establish their forfeiture program um, dating back uh, to the early 2000s. And um, they would say now, and I agree with them, that they now have one of the most effective asset forfeiture programs on the African continent, not because of what I did, I just, help them get started, but they've really taken the ball and run with it. And um, they really have made great strides in using uh, the tools that had been enacted. And other countries are in the same position. Most of the English common law countries have both civil and criminal forfeiture. They call the civil side non-conviction based forfeiture, mm-hmm. uh, but not all of them have had a great deal of experience with it. And sometimes I get invited over to train their judges, train their prosecutors and so forth. Uh, In other uh, cases, uh, it's just so newly enacted uh, or it's in the process of being enacted that they need help drafting the legislation. I was in Malta uh, last year helping them draft the legislation and then went back this year after it had been enacted to to help train the judges and prosecutors. Um, And I did the same in Latvia. Um, And then there are countries that yet don't have uh, non-conviction based forfeiture. Um, That would be. Outside of the uh, English common law countries, that's not that's usually the case, and uh, many countries are adopting it, and they realize that they need it for all the reasons I mentioned: fugitive defendants, unknown defendants, dead defendants, um, so forth. And um, I'm going to uh, South America uh, later this month to uh, to help uh, at conferences explain how other countries use non-conviction-based forfeiture and why they might want to implement it. And then if they ask, uh, I might be available uh, in the future to uh, help them draft their legislation.
1: That's, that's great. And that obviously uh, leads me to your take on the U.S. Since you've had a lot to do with the crafting and working again with policymakers and at the Justice Department through the past several decades, do you feel that the uh, criminal and civil forfeiture infrastructure we have in, in the U.S., both is working well and doesn't really need any tweaking? or are there some things that if you if you had a chance you you would uh, uh, maybe improve is the wrong word, but there's there's some additional things that you would you would uh, advocate. Well, sure, there's always room for improvement. I
0: think we have a very effective program. Uh, we forfeit um, billions of dollars every year, both in criminal cases and in non-conviction based cases. Uh, and return a tremendous amount of money to victims. As a result, uh, we, we have a real impact on, um, uh, on crime and uh, improvement of uh, the effectiveness of law enforcement because of that. But every day I read uh, a case or something and I say, you know, there's a glitch in the statute. Congress enacted in, uh, a statute creating a new crime and forgot to make forfeiture part of it. Right. Or they didn't. Uh, they only made the proceeds forfeitable and not the property used to facilitate. As an example, just in June, there was a lot of press given to the enactment of the first gun control legislation, the first effective gun control legislation in decades. And it contains some new crimes. And Congress remembered to include some forfeiture provisions for those uh, new crimes, but uh, in some cases, only the forfeiture of the proceeds and not the property used to commit the crime. Um, And that's unfortunate that they sort of missed that. Uh, there's always something that you could uh, fix here and there. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to get Congress's attention on those things to get them fixed when you need it.
1: Right. Well, um, I've been working with uh, a group called the Antiquities Coalition for a number of years, um, looking at uh, trying to get uh, dealers and advisors in that space to be covered under the Bank Secrecy Act. And we were, finally successful in doing that. It's not finished yet. There's uh, There was an advanced notice proposed polls rulemaking. And my understanding is there won't be an official rulemaking, uh, official notice of comment until next January. But um, I also noticed in, in uh, the past week yeah, up in New York, there was uh, a Homeland Security and State Department and local, um, I believe the U.S. Attorney's Office, could have been the Manhattan DA. I apologize if I don't know exactly that they were returning uh, cultural artifacts to Cambodia, at least at least 30 uh, what they considered to be stolen property. And some were like over a thousand years old, which is pretty amazing. But I noticed that um, a couple of years ago, you've just posted it, but you wrote it several years ago for the North Carolina Journal of International Law. Uh, a, a debate, I guess, or at least a treatment of this issue that seems in the weeds, but not to me. I I, I could certainly understand it, but the title of your article was Recovering Stolen Art and Antiquities Under the Forfeiture Laws. Who's entitled when there are conflicting claims? And I can just tell the limited amount of work I've done with the Antiquities Coalition. In some cases, auction houses and others will say, hey, we had no idea that what we were selling or purchasing uh, was stolen or, or what have you. Uh, And I'm interested in uh, your take, and I would urge folks to read your article. But when you tackled that issue, what did you uh, what did you discover?
0: Well, number one, uh, the recovery of antiquities and art uh, is one of the most important uses of the civil forfeiture statute, because you almost never have the thief to prosecute. Um, The property is almost always found years or decades later and in the hands of a third party. Uh, the classic examples uh, include not only the one you gave about uh, archeological resources and antiquities that are taken from uh, other parts of the world like the Cambodian statues or um, things that are found in, uh, in, in, in Southern Europe or in the Middle East and find their way here into the United States, but uh, artwork that was stolen by the Nazis during the Holocaust or was stolen from museums in years afterwards. You don't have the person to prosecute even if you did Um, The statute of limitations would run, will have run on the criminal prosecution, Um, but you recover the property. And so you need civil forfeiture in order to do that. And the problem is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in that in our appropriate uh, zeal to ensure due process, we have created an innocent owner defense. Congress um, amended the statute more than 20 years ago to make it uh, uh, an affirmative defense in every case for the person in found in possession of the property to say that he acquired it as a bona fide purchaser for value. And that's appropriate in many, many cases. You know, somebody steals money and, and he uses it to buy a car. The car dealer maybe didn't know he was being paid with stolen money and he gets to keep the money. Uh, the government should take the car from from the thief who when he bought it. Um, so you want to protect the bona fide purchaser for value. But what if the bona fide purchaser for value is uh, someone who claims, I bought this painting, um, and, and here you have the, um, the art collector or the heir of the Jewish family in Europe who says that's our painting, uh, who gets priority. And under the uh, current law, uh, if, if you use the forfeiture laws to recover the property, the bona fide purchaser prevails. Uh, and uh, even though you have the victim, sitting there saying, I never surrendered title to my property. It was stolen from me. And so that's something that has to be addressed to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen um, uh, in in cases where it shouldn't happen.
1: Yeah, I, I found that very interesting. And you have, obviously, recommendations in the article along the lines that you just mentioned. Um, Steph Casella, uh, again, uh, Asset Forfeiture Law, LLC. You also have a uh, monthly digest, the Money Laundering and Forfeiture Digest that, Folks can subscribe to that includes all sorts of uh, coverage of cases, uh, law changes, you know, what, what have you uh, on civil criminal courts, uh, forfeiture statutes and money laundering uh, statutes as well, international as well as uh, U.S. Uh, based. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time. And I'll get you out of here on this. Besides what you've already told us, you've told us a lot. What is it about asset forfeiture? that people don't appreciate? I think you've already said there's due process and there's all sorts of things. So that's part of it. But is there anything else when you see coverage of the asset forfeiture uh, tool, if you will, in, and I'm not blaming the media, but in the media or covered? what is it about asset forfeiture besides everything you've already told us that we don't understand or appreciate?
0: Well, just that it's that it's not automatic, that there is a long process, that 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 a seizure is the beginning and not the end. That a seizure of property is to forfeiture the way an arrest is to a conviction. You arrest a guy for a, you know for an armed robbery. Uh, he he doesn't spend the rest of his life in jail until he has a trial. And the same is true for forfeiture. Uh, all of these cases involve lengthy procedures. The only cases that happen quickly are the uncontested ones, and there are a lot of uncontested ones because when you know somebody seizes a pile of cash and a kilo of cocaine and a bunch of loaded firearms from somebody, he doesn't always come forward and say, Hey, that's my stuff uh, for understandable reasons. But aside from the uncontested cases, you know, these are cases where um, they involve complex issues of law and, uh, and a lot of uh, exchanging of, of evidence over a period of time. And then they, at the end of the day, um, the idea is to, is to reach a fair result. And I, and I think they do.
1: Steph Casella, thank you so much for sharing your insight today. Uh, safe travels, as always. And as I say to folks, uh, for more information, go to his website, assetforfeiturelaw.us. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, John. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's
1: going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.